Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Luxury Living Chicago Realty, Aaron Galvin. Aaron and his wife, Amy, have been on a mission to transform the Chicago skyline since 2007. And in the process, they have built one of the most highly rated real estate firms in the country. Aaron graduated from Miami University with a focus in public relations and marketing, transitioning into a job into liquor sales. When he assisted in the brokering of apartments for friends and family, Aaron realized not only was he good at it, but he had a passion for the process. Starting his own firm in 2007 with his wife signing on, the two have built up one of the biggest role players in the Illinois real estate market, consistently ranked among the top 50 on the Inc. 5000, and with a record-breaking start to 2021, the sky truly seems like the limit. Luxury Living Chicago Realty is growing like crazy, so Aaron, my friend, let's get right to it. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Drew. Awesome intro. It's good. good to hear that. Yes. So <laughs> assuming we got it, you know, somewhat correct, how, how did we get how did we get into this back in 2007? You know, you got it really close. I mean, it really was was that that story. So it's uh, it, it's an interesting story, no question. Uh, I met you know 2007 for for luxury living, uh, but I think it it really starts before that. Um, you know, because you don't you don't just get to start a company because you want to do it. You have to you have to pay your dues. You gotta you gotta do some things to be ready to do that and at least have some level of success. So sure. You know, the story of kind of how I got into real estate, you know, you did get it right. Graduated from Miami of Ohio. I moved to Chicago. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. Um, I moved to Chicago 15 days after graduating. Uh, and, you know, my first job was with, uh, with, was with Anheuser-Busch. Um, my job was to uh, basically be the liaison between Bud Light and Maxim Magazine. Uh, helping promote the Bud Light brand in Chicago, in downtown Chicago, as a 22-year-old single guy, it was wow. a, it was it was a good deal. It's a good, yeah. good job right out of college. Um, very quickly, though, I parlayed that into a sales route and moved that into um, you know working in that in the liquor business for a company called Allied Domec, which was a conglomerate of Stoli, Kahlua, Malibu, Makers Mark, lots of brands that you've heard of. Again, very brand centric. So you know. First and foremost, everything that I have always paid attention to and was very cognizant of was brand. So, you know, when we ultimately started Luxury Living, creating brand equity was number one on our list. We wanted to create a brand that we could be proud of. Um, so, you know, I give you that background so you understand that aspect from sure. the brand standpoint. The apartment aspect is, is really a, an interesting story. I mean, it is. I moved downtown. I lived downtown Chicago. And then I had a bunch of friends who were starting to look for apartments downtown. Um, and there were two things that came together. So number one was that within the building that I lived in, they were offering basically a month's rent if you found a friend who lived in the, who, who you could move into and you could refer to their building. And I also had these friends who were looking for apartments. So I came across some ads in what was, you know, back then kind of a more analog newspaper type classified ads is how you found apartments. And I started connecting with a guy who was running, uh, running these ads and, you know, and working with him and trying to get people to move into to my building. Um, I very quickly realized that there was, there was something here 
in the way he was doing this in this kind of analog way. And that because of the experience that I had, um, specifically living out in California during college, um, I did an internship with Nike. Um, I recognized the, the value of Craigslist actually very early on. Huh. And, and I brought this to this guy and I said, listen, you know, you've helped me and my friends find some apartments. You're advertising in this, you know, old newspaper. I said, I need to bring you into the digital age. I think there's an opportunity here for you to grow your business. And his response was, ah, I'm old school. I don't, I don't need anybody. I can do this. And I said to him, as I never forget it. I was a 23 year old kid at the time. I said, listen, I go, if you are not online in the next six months, you're going to be out of business. He goes, all right, get your ass over here. Let's meet. I said, whoa, whoa. Like I'm just, I'm in shorts and flip-flops. Like he's like, I don't care what you're wearing. Get your ass over here. So, so we met and very quickly developed a, a very important relationship. Um, we worked together for about three years. He was definitely a mentor to me, taught me the ropes within the business. Um, I'll never forget my first weekend. You know, I, I, <laughs> I was by the job that I had, I had to, you know, kind of be a liaison between the brands and, and ultimately what, you know, uh, and, and the sales reps who were selling the product for, for the liquor business. And I went, and part of that was taking people golfing, taking them out to dinner. I went golfing uh, one Friday afternoon. I took my flip phone. I put it away because this was before the iPhone. And I put some ads on Craigslist, just kind of starting like, you know, just like, let's just try this out. And I picked up my phone after 18 holes of golf and I had 23 voicemails. Everybody wanted to see these apartments that I had posted. My first month doing this, I rented 50 apartments and I knew I was, I was definitely onto something there. So we worked together for about three years. And then, you know, that was really at a time where if you remember condo sales, the sale market was very strong. This was pre-recession. So in that space, I really focused in on really taking the marketing and the level of service to a level that had never been seen in those who were looking for apartments. And, and we did that together. We tried a few different things. We, we put in, you know, what I, I put it, you know, I would, I would work seven days a week. I was running around on the weekends. I was showing people apartments. I was understanding what it was that was important to them in seeking a new home. And I will tell you, Drew, people's true colors come out when they are looking for apartments. Couples who are coming together for the first time, you figure out if they should really be living together or not. Because um, wow. it's, it's the most important thing, right? When you are selecting a home, whether it's an apartment or a condo, it is the most financially significant investment in your life. And it is the most, and, and it's a significant emotional investment in your life because you're making memories there. You're living together. You're doing those things. And that was always at the core of the way I went about selling. And that was at the core of what we started with Luxury Living Chicago. So when we started Luxury Living, it was about providing a higher level service experience for those who were seeking luxury apartments and knowing that even though it was just an apartment, it was still that very significant milestone in people's lives. And that was, you know, and to this day, that was really what started this thing. And it's, and we've built this brand. We've done a ton of different stuff in the digital landscape. I'm sure you're going to ask me a bunch of other questions, but that was, that was really how it started. So that's why I say like, it wasn't just 2007. It was those three, four years before it was those internships. I mean, it goes back to high school. All of those things are important to you to yeah. run a successful company. Yeah. What did you see during those three years of, of kind of getting your feet wet in this industry that made you say, I want to double down on this. I want to, I want to keep going down this trajectory. Yeah, that's a great question. It was, it really was about, it really was the first eight months. So it was, you know, I did both jobs for the first eight months. Um, I worked, 
God knows how many hours during those, those years. Um, and it really was this idea of helping people find home. Um, you know, going back to the liquor business and, you know, listen, I, I like to have a drink like everybody else once in a while, but it didn't feel authentic to who I was. Mm. I didn't love what I was selling. Honestly, we were going to some of the, the most challenged um, parts of Chicago to try to sell that product. And it just didn't feel really good. So the idea to be able to, to sell somebody and, and help somebody find a new home, um, it happened to be at the very high end of the market, the most luxurious and nicest and newest buildings in downtown Chicago really resonated with me. Totally makes sense. Now you, you, you take the leap and you start your own company. And then a year later, we have an insane recession, especially with the housing market. Yep. What, what the hell is that like? You know, I look back at that time and I was so naive. I was so young. I didn't even know how bad it was. Right? <laughs> like, we had started this company. Yes, the recession had happened, you know, Lehman Brothers, all the things that we all know to be the Great Recession now. But in my world, you got to remember, the majority of our focus at that time was apartments and everything that fell off a cliff was condos in the for sale market you know with the subprime mortgage and all those things so there were a lot of condo buildings that converted to apartment buildings Hmm. there were a lot of of people who had bought condos who became what we referred to as accidental landlords right they thought they were going to buy this property and then flip it two three years later because that's what had happened the last few years and ultimately they became landlords and they needed a service to be able to, to lease and manage that for them. Um, and then we also had a good number of, of uh, newer buildings that had been contemplated that were delivering around that 2008, 2009 time that kept us really busy. So from 08 to 10, we actually did well. We ran very lean. We were running a very similar business than I was before. Um, we weren't really growing a company yet. But, you know, we were making enough money to, to survive and, and start to, to build a nest egg as, as a family because Amy and I, my wife, started this company together. You know, we got married in 2006. We started Luxury Living in, in 2007. Uh, we had our first, our first kid, our, our daughter, Mia, in 2009. Um, so, you know, that period of time for us was really about just starting out, starting to grow a family. We didn't need nearly as much um, at that point in time, and, and, and it worked really well. Um, it really wasn't until 2000, you know, late 2010, 11, where there was just a halt in movement, right? I think, you know, there was this kind of, okay, the, the world is ending in 2008, but we're still, we still have things in motion. There were deals that were made, something has to happen. So that kept us going through 2010 and 11. But in 11, there was just no movement. There was no new development. There were, you know, there were, there was just kind of this uncertainty to when we were going to really break out of this, this recession. Um, we had personally were pregnant with our, with our second daughter, Lana, um, and, and moved out to the Chicago suburbs um, and ultimately took a moment to step back and said, you know, I don't want to just help people find apartments forever. I feel like there is a higher calling and we really do want to try to grow something different and meaningful in this space. And this was a this was a, a two-year period, probably between late 2010 and or you know, it was 11 to, to 13, where I had come from a space where um, what you did was not 
for the collective. It was, you know, kind of, there wasn't a lot of transparency. We kind of kept a very low profile. Not a lot of people understood what we were doing in this business. And, and, it, and at that point, again, it didn't feel truly authentic. And I felt like if we're going to make something of this, we really have to get out there and we have to talk about this kind of business. And, and also knowing that like after the subprime mortgage and after condos and sales really kind of took a dip, that apartments were starting to lose that stigma, right? It was like, oh, you're renting. That's a smart move now. Like, yeah. You know, that shifted in 2011, 2012, heading into 2013, as people were recovering from the recession. And my whole thing was, let's get out there and network. And I started talking with real estate developers, commercial brokers, um, architects, landscape architects, anybody who was in the space to understand where we could be differentiated within this market. And what became obvious was was two things. Number one, people were not really gathering data on renters. They, you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't top of mind. It was again, mid 2000s, you know, kind of rentals are low man on the totem pole, kind of seen a second fiddle. um, And nobody was gathering the data on them in a really meaningful way. And then the second aspect is the way that the industry works is that when you think about apartments, you think about property management companies and property management companies get hired to manage that property, but they also get hired to market and lease the property. And quite honestly, it's not their core competency. Their core competency is actually the daily operations of apartment buildings. Whereas for us um, as a brokerage, we were always ahead of the curve in a digital marketing space. We had looked at other industries we understood how to market and drive leads. And we also knew at the core of what the renter was looking for. So there was this opportunity to bifurcate leasing from property management, especially for new lease up high-end buildings mm. because it moves really fast, right? When you open a new apartment building, 200, 300, 500 units, the demand is off the charts. People wanna be in those buildings because it's brand new. And, and that was our concept. And we went to developers and said, listen, hire a property management company as you always have, but hire us to market and lease in, the, in, in a way that has never really been done in the multifamily space before, other than a few handful of deals in New York City. And you know, so that was kind of the catalyst to, to our launching point in 2013. And I'll never forget, it was July, 2013, right after July 4th, almost eight years ago today, we landed our first, what we refer to as exclusive leasing contract. We had a 60 unit building where we went to the developer. I sat in a restaurant with him. I had a four page Microsoft Word document. And I said, here's my plan. We're gonna lease 60 units in 60 days. Give us the keys. And and he gave us a shot. And we ended up pre-leasing, which means we leased all of the apartments before anybody moved in, Hmm. in 60 days. That building remained full all the way through 2019. They sold the building. We're now working with them on a 700 unit deal and and they are our longest standing client. So my first real client, first developer client is not as continues to be one of my biggest clients and has a building that's gonna deliver in 24, 25. So I think, you know, again, we talk about those 10,000 hours, talk about the life, you talk about growing a business. We're talking about almost a 10 year relationship now with that developer from one lunch on a four page Microsoft Word document. <laughs> so, you know, it and and it's like 
it's such a such a pivotal moment to kind of take that moment and, and recognize that. Um, so you know that that aspect was really big, and that's how we started to grow that. And then I talked about the data. We started hiring really strong brokers as well to go out and lease these apartments in the same way we always had. Um, but we aggregated the data, and and then with that data from all of those rentals combined with some of the exclusive things that we the exclusive leasing agreements that we have been doing we had a very unique data set that nobody else had, which positioned me as a thought leader in the space. Mm. So I was able to go out, speak on panels, meet more people, develop more business. Um, and, and that was the jumping off point to the real growth of Luxury Living Chicago starting in 2013. Man, so much to ask and dig about in there. <laughs> First, and this is this is not something I want to spend much time on. I'm just curious before I get to my next question. I'm writing down my next question to make sure I, I remember to ask it. But uh, first, well, help me understand the business model of this kind of a, of a company, right? So like traditional real estate, I get it. If you if you broker the deal, you're on the buyer side or the seller side, you get your 3%. That's how you make your money. You move yep. on to the next one. How does this work specifically for you guys? And let's say that 60, that 60 condo lease that you had. What, is yep. the, what does the business model look like for you guys? Yep, great question. So on the traditional real estate front, I do want to make it clear, we are a traditional brokerage in that sense. So we have plenty of transactions where we're representing tenants or we're representing buyers who are looking to buy condos. We're getting that, you know, three for two and a half, three percent on the buy side. We list condos, do all those things. So that is an aspect of the revenue source. Okay. In the rental space, the way that we get paid is we get either a flat rate or a percentage of, of the rent that we're driving. Um, that is relatively similar to how you would make money on the sale side. So much smaller bites, right? So on a, you know, for example, on a $500,000 sale on two and a half percent, you're making, you know, 12, five. Um, it takes, you know, an average rental deal is somewhere between 25 and 3000 in our world. So you got to do, you know, five transactions for every one rental versus sale. Yeah. Um, but the rentals, you know, when you have volume, they come and they come quick. Interesting. And then, so let's say you lease out those, those 60, is it a potential recurring revenue every time they, they renew their lease kind of thing? Uh, it has been an evolution of that. There's no recurring revenue to the extent that like we get paid if they just renew, if we're not handling renewals. Um, but this has evolved over time. Uh, and ultimately we have stayed in these buildings as that exclusive leasing broker. And when things come up for lease, when somebody doesn't renew, we get the opportunity to re-rent it. Um, very recently, uh, really brought on by COVID and, and some, so many of the deals that were out there that happened all over the country, but especially in Chicago, we feel like there's some real value that we can bring in the renewal process now as well for people who are coming up um, that just got, listen, they got amazing deals in 2020. Yeah. And, and that's not sustainable as we move forward. So for us, it comes back to that data and that market intelligence that we have, that we can not only educate our developers and our, you know, and, and our B2B world, but we can help educate consumers on making sure that they're getting the best value in a renewal on a new lease, whatever that is. Because at the end of the day, the, the luxury renter, who is really our, our primary target, and even the buyer as well, it's all about perceived value right? Everybody says people want to feel like they're getting a deal. They, they want a high level of service and they want to perceive value in terms of what they are actually getting. And oftentimes, especially at this end of the market, people have the money to be able to afford 
really whatever they want. Like they can choose to buy, they can choose to rent. Um, and these are expensive apartments. These are expensive condos. But at the end of the day, it is about that perceived value. And that's where we have always had this great value proposition where we're gonna educate you and make sure that you are highly informed on what's happening in the market. And that level of market intelligence is a real differentiator for us. Interesting. Well, yeah, I want, that was actually where I want, wanted to go next is I'm fascinated with this idea of creating like a 12-star experience. And it came from an interview I heard with the founders of Airbnb, where they were talking about just a thought exercise they did early on that helped them go from a fledgling few of first apartments in New York to what it is today, was they asked what a 12-star experience would look like, knowing it was impossible to deliver a 12-star. But if you started there and worked down, you'd find a true five-star experience. So they gave this example of like, all right, what would it look like from the moment they get off the plane? Well, we'd have a marching band there with the sign with their name and, you know, ridiculous stuff. But eventually you got down to like, well, actually, that is a good idea. You know, that would be different than our competitors or whatever. And, and a lot of what you've spoken to has been this idea about, you know, quality of service and quality. Like this is different than I'm used to. How, do, how have you guys thought about and approached differentiating through the, the quality of experience you're giving your customers? Yep. So for us, it comes down to communication we take every single communication at a very high level and want somebody to understand exactly what's going to happen throughout the process of working with Luxury Living Chicago. It starts on our website where we describe exactly what's gonna happen when you fill out a contact form. Mm. I'll even take it a step back. I think that contact form is part of it. I mean, something as simple as you know, what's known as ghost text within a contact form, right? If you, leave a, if you leave a contact form open and it just is a blank space, people don't know what to do. If you say something like, you know, notes, the more information you provide, the better we can help you, right? It's that little thing. Yeah. You would be amazed at what people will tell you in a contact form. And that just sets the relationship off on the right note, right? Mm. So, so that contact form to the automated workflows, to the continued, repetitive, consistent information that's delivered from the point of somebody reaching out to us to the time they are meeting with a broker or coming into one of our buildings, there are no surprises. And I think that that is something that really strong service-based companies spend a lot of time and thought and energy to make sure that that experience is great leading up to the actual sale because when you're representing beautiful property and you're selling something that you really believe in the sale is not that hard honestly it's mm. all about how have you made people feel super comfortable leading up to that you show the beautiful property you have that to to, to some to some extent it does sell itself and then while on tour or any sort of interaction it really is about feeling like you are an advocate for somebody in that space. And we do that through two different ways. And I've talked about the data. So one is knowledge, right? It's market knowledge and being able to speak to what else people are looking at. You know, knowing that if someone's looking at an apartment here, you're probably looking at these two others. And here's what I know about those and not knocking them, right? You're not going to yeah. knock those other buildings, but you're going to talk about based on what I've heard from you, this is what's gonna be most important to you. And you might find that here, but you won't find it here. 
right? Yeah. There's a very different way to consultatively sell. And we, we use knowledge to do that. The second aspect is empathy. Empathy goes a really long way in the, in the luxury service experience. Um, you just need to, to be able to understand where people are. Again, when someone is looking for a new home, it is the most financially significant decision in their life. And it has a lot of emotion tied to it. Yeah. You respect that. And you understand that that's a level of service unto itself. And then after you make a sale or you're trying to kind of close the deal, it's that continued communication. So we have lots of different workflows, lots of different drip campaigns, all of the things that lots of other companies have, but we iterate on them all of the time. We, we track it, we get reviews. We want to make sure that we're continuing to provide that highest level service experience because that communication is a true differentiator. When you talk about workflows, can you elaborate a little bit on what that sure. looks like in your world? Yeah. So workflow meaning, so, you know, as a contact form would come in, you know, someone goes on the website, they fill out a form, they want to find out about what's happening. How are we going to work with your company? And then what, it, and the workflow that I'm referring to is a combination of automation and personalization. So we use, I mean, uh, we use a system called HubSpot. We're yeah. big fans of HubSpot. Lots of entrepreneurial companies use it. Um, so HubSpot is probably best in class in terms of creating that marketing workflow from an automation standpoint. Um, so, you know, you can design beautiful emails, you can um, track those emails, you can really understand that renter or that, that, that consumer uh, demographic and that consumer behavior. Um, and then at certain points within that, within the workflows, we'll add in different people to touch base with them and, and add that personal element, right? You schedule a showing, somebody might reach out to you via text and say, hey, I'm so-and-so looking forward to meeting you We'll see you at this time. Here's where you mm. park, right? These are all such little things. Yeah. When you look at when you look at large scale organizations, or any organization for that matter, those that focus on that, think about that. Think about your own service experiences. When you don't know where to park, or what you're going to expect there, or what time you need to check in, or do am I sitting right now? Right? Is my table outdoors or indoors during COVID? Like those kinds of things. Those are the different things that really, really make a difference for folks. I love it. Now, you may have just answered the, the next question, but I ask it anyways, just in case something different comes to mind or an addition comes to mind. But you guys have had, uh, you know, some really unparalleled success in your industry when it's a saturated industry. Like there are plenty of people out there in the real estate industry, yet you guys are consistently at the top of your field. How is that is it, is it all of this reasons or is there anything else that comes to mind that you think has helped you as well? Well, all these reasons are super important, but Drew, there is one thing that makes this that we haven't talked about yet that really is the biggest portion of growing a business like this that is very different that has happened since 2013 in a really material way. And that's the people of our organization. I cannot do this myself. You know, I get to be on the podcast. I get to be the face of this. Yes, I am the CEO of the company, but the people that we have had, the people that we have nurtured um, that, that work here, that don't work here anymore, right? All the folks that, that have come up through the ranks since, since we really started growing a company um, are, are the reason why we are successful the way we are. Yeah. Was that something that you feel like you naturally knew how to do from the beginning, attract great people, utilize them well, or were like the rest of us, did you have to go and learn how to do that as you were doing it? No, man, it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it still is to a great, people still are to an extent the hardest part. Um, I think they always have been and always will be. Um, We've definitely gotten better at it, but man, we made, we made some bad hires. I mean, just like everybody else. Um, So no, it, it did not come naturally, but what, what did come naturally is, is quite honestly for me and for Amy, we care about people. I think, you know, we, we have, we have core, core values within our organization. Um, and one of those core values that I think is probably most important is kindness. Hmm. And we, we only want to, we are kind and we only want to work with people who are kind. And, you know, real estate specifically is an industry that can be thought of as pretty cutthroat pretty independent, kind of on your own, you're in a silo. And we just flip that on its head. You know, kindness is number one. And that has to do with the way that we interact with each other, the way that we split deals, the way that we create commission structures, all of those things that are important because it is a business. But then it is a function of how people really work together and like being together. Um, And the second core value that I think is is super important to that extent is, is being a team player. So, you know, team player kindness are two of our core values that are really very important. And I think the difference, if there was a, if there's a moment you talk about core values, I think a lot of folks have different core values. Um, when you have core values, you are supposed to hire, fire and incentivize based on those core values. Right. For a while we had core values and we had fancy words on a wall and, you know, we put them on our website and we thought, all right, we've got core values. Great. When we started hiring, firing and incentivizing based on those, that was the watershed moment. That was where it really flipped. Um, And then you take it to another level in how we have built out systemized processes for hiring. Um, And, you know, in terms of, you know, what we're doing in job descriptions, how we're writing those job descriptions um, and not not trying to hire a ton of people at a time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these organizations that can hire 100, 200 people, you hear about the big tech startups. I don't know how they do it. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's really tough. Hiring yeah. is, you know, oftentimes a 60 to 90 day process for one key employee. And, you know, we will, uh, we'll take the time to do that. You know, we do different assessments. We have, we have a writing assessment because as you can tell, probably communication is key for us. Yep. And that, a lot of that is writing an email and, and actually the written word. So, you know, we'll do a writing test with all the folks that, that work for us. Um, and then, you know, we have, we have a, a, a gatekeeper, right? Who every, I, we read, I'm trying to remember what book it was. Uh, it's not good to grade. It was five dysfunctions. It's a Patrick Lencioni book. I can't remember. Yeah. What the five dysfunctions of a team. It might've been the five dysfunctions of a team. It might be the, the other one. Okay. But it was a story of like the guy who got hired, but like the one guy who always does the hiring was on vacation. Like, oh, we'll just go ahead and we'll do it anyway. Can't do it. Just can't. <laughs> you have to have that process. You've got to wait for that. Um, and I think that's, that's a super important aspect. Yeah. I want to ask about that just for a second, because one of the most consistent things we hear on this podcast, which makes total sense is the difficulty in, in hiring well, right. And, and what is the process or are the processes that would increase the likelihood? Cause it's never a, it's never a sure thing, right. But they would increase the likelihood that yep. you've got the right kind of person, um, in the organization. So what have you guys found that you're like, man, we felt like we struck gold when we realized we, we needed to add this into the process. Yeah. So I think it has been, you know, some of those things I just mentioned, I think number one, the writing, yeah, that, that writing test is, is super important. 
Um, and we do that very early on, right? Somebody will apply for a job, we'll screen those applications. And then before we even bring them in for an interview, they're doing a writing test. Um, we'll also do what we refer to as a core values interview, where before we're even talking about experience or any of those things, we have our experience manager actually meet with potential candidates and just give them a lay of the land for what we're doing, who we are, and find out about them and see if it is a core values fit before they even move into more of the tactical, technical aspect of, of um, actually, you know, interviewing. Yeah. What are so some examples? That, that, yeah. What are some examples of how you can guess, I guess would be what I say, where you can get a sense of, of the core values, right? Like I can all, I can, I can, I can fake being kind or like, if you tell me that's your value, then I'll put on. A, so is there a way that you not necessarily sneakily, but you, you know, intelligently design that conversation where some of those emerge? Sure. I mean, here's a, here's a sample interview question. If I talk to your best friend, right? What would they say is your greatest strength in your, in your, in an area you need to improve? Hmm. That's different than asking somebody like, what is your greatest strength and where do you need to improve? Because if you're asking your best friend, they know you the best. Yeah. And that really gives you some really good insight into something like that. I like um, that. You can ask somebody, you know, in terms of a, uh, if they've worked on a, would they prefer to work? Like, so right. Team player is one of our, our core values, right? So do you prefer to, to work in a team or, or in a silo on your own, right? Where, where are you most successful in, in your career, um, you know, in that network environment? Right. So if they're like, ah, I hate working with teams, man. I just want to be left alone. You're like, okay, that, yeah. this might not be the right place for you. Yeah. I mean, another, another one that comes to mind. So another core value of ours is dynamic life experience. So we're asking people like, what is, what is the greatest vacation you've ever taken? right so and and why because that tells you like all right what are you doing how how far you know where else have you been what because we have a saying it's like you can only talk about sports and the weather so long right you've got to be <laughs> yeah. able to talk about other things you have to be dynamic um and oftentimes that is travel that is playing a musical instrument that is um you know learning a new skill cooking that sort of thing we yeah. want folks who really have that dynamic life experience outside of the office. Yeah, I like that. I mean, so you mentioned books like Good to Great, some yep. of Patrick Len Lencioni's work. Uh, a question I've been enjoying asking recently in the podcast has been, uh, what are five books that come to mind oh, that you think have most shaped you? All, All right. right. Great question. Um, so Good to Great is definitely one of them. Um, and I'll I'll, I'll sidebar for a moment as I think about the different books, but sure. good to great is one, um, you know, good to great is kind of the basis for um, the EOS system. So we yep. operate on EOS, which I'm sure many folks you've talked to have done that. I, I guess at that when you said hire, fire and reward based off the core yeah, values. So, so, you know, Patrick, you know, that, that good to great book is definitely one of those that really, really resonated and, and obviously right people, right seats, that concept when I talk about people comes from good to great. And, and that's, you know, that's the basis of EOS. So, so that, that definitely really resonates. And the book traction. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, so track, so, so, so yeah, so I would say good to great. Yep. Um, traction itself. I didn't love traction because that was just so technical. There was, a, I never yeah. remember there's the fable one that goes at the EOS. I can remember the, the title of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't remember that one either. Okay, but yeah. basically the concepts around around 
there's and there's Vern Harner scaling up th those kinds of good to great principles yep. shaped you a lot. What else has shaped you that you felt like I actually applied this and it was big for me? Yeah, so I gotta think. Um, I'm drawing blanks on the names of books right now. It's hard hard to stump me. <laughs> got them. You 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 got me. Uh, <laughs> Give me a minute. Let's come back to it. I've, okay. I've got some good ones. There's a negotiation book. There's, I'm just, I'm just drawing a blank on, on the names of the books. Right yeah, now. you're good. Was the negotiation book, the um, never split the difference, the Chris That's Voss. Book? There you go. Never. I can't believe I forgot the name of that book. Dude, yeah. you're on the, you're on the spot right now. It, it yeah. happens. No, never split the difference. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that was, that was eye opening for me, especially as I started having some more significant negotiating conversations as these deals got bigger and bigger understanding the mentality during negotiation um, and, you know, really how to do that in a way that, that is most productive, not thinking about the person you are negotiating with as the adversary yeah. the negotiation itself being the adversary. And we're really trying to come together to, to solve the problem. Oh so, man. It's so big. And, and for me yeah. too, even with my kids, that book helped me. Oh yeah. Like one of the things he talked about was you would, don't would have to, be, would, would it be outrageous if you brushed your teeth right now? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, just a thought, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> not like, will you go brush your teeth? Like, would it be outrageous if you brushed your teeth right now? No, no, it wouldn't. So, okay. Why don't let's you try it. Teeth? Yeah. Yeah. Try. Yeah. The biggest thing for me was he was talking about not having to agree with the worldview of the person you're negotiating with, um, yet you can still reflect it. And so he was saying, like, obviously, if I'm, I'm actually negotiating with a terrorist, I don't believe in the worldview that they have that has led them to this moment, but I can understand it. And so yeah. he'll ask them, how, how are we how did we get here? Right. And then he'll listen and he'll reflect back to them. It's that active listening to reflect back. So it sounds like you feel like the, the world has really screwed you over and that this was the only option you had left was to take these hostages. Is that right? And that struck me because it is like if you're in an argument with your wife or with a client or whatever, you think you're empowering their worldview by reflecting it back. But he's like, no, all you're doing is creating a connection that you that they feel like. And I remember he said, if you ever get somebody to say that's right or yeah. that's it, you've created emotional connection. And now you can actually lever you can influence that relationship with that tether. Right. Yep. And yeah. man, I found that to be so useful. Even like I said, even with my kids, even if I completely disagree with what's happening. Do they feel like I understand them enough where when I reflect back to them, what's going on, they say, that's it. Yep. That's what I'm feeling. And now we can actually have a conversation, right? Yep, exactly. All right. I thought of some other ones. I knew I'd Give get there. I just, I just need a minute. Uh, the Messy Middle by Scott Belsky. Yes. Yes. Like huge. Why did that one, why did that one uh, speak to you? Oh man. So, you know, it, cause it is like running a company, like, so we're at 14 years now running a company for 14 years, there's going to be lots of ups and downs. Um, I would say, you know, this, that, and he tracks it, I think in that book from like basically 08 to maybe like 15 or 16 is kind of before he sold out to, uh, and, and I shouldn't say sold out in a bad way, but sold, <laughs> he didn't, he, he sold to, to Adobe and is now still with Adobe and, and doing incredible things over there. Yeah. Um, I absolutely respect everything that he, he did in that. Um, but just recognizing that there's going to be such ups and downs and that so many companies were going through this. And it was at a time, um, I think when I read this, I'm looking at my notes here, I read it in 2019. So that makes sense. 
So, you know, in 20, in 27, late 2017, we started on EOS. And we started on EOS because we had gotten to a point, we had built enough brand equity, I had won enough business. And quite honestly, at the end of 17, I hadn't made any money. And we had all this business coming in 2018. And I was like, in that year, at least, I was like, what are we doing? Like, mm. what are we going to do here? And in 20, you know, ultimately we sourced out a few different resources and we landed on EOS and we invested in it and we started building our leadership team and we went down that path. And in 2018, you know, we hired some folks, we started, you know, hiring more brokers, we started growing, we executed on that business that I had won. I mean, and we're talking like 10x, like 10x the, the, the number of transactions that we had to perform from year over year. I mean, it was mm. a big jump between 17 and 18. We knew we needed something. So we did that. We were able to perform. We executed it. We were able to land that next big deal. We got to, you know, the end of 20. I, I remember in Q3 of 2018, you know, when you're learning about EOS and they talk about the visionary role, and yep. I'm sure you're not surprised that I'm the visionary. Yeah. My wife, Amy, has been the integrator. Um, the whole role of the visionary is to have 20 ideas in the whole year. That's all that have the potential to double the business. Right. Yeah. And if they only do that all year, then that is the pure visionary. And I really took that to heart. I was like, man, what a wonderful world that would be. If I could just sit there and have 20 ideas that would double the business. And I took Q3 2018 and I really tried to do it. Right. I tried to let go of the reins, and I sat back and I just was like, all right, what are we going to do? Like, I, I remember, and this is pre-COVID, right before you work from home, I would spend an hour just, and that's when I really started meditating. I started mm -hmm. like really getting into a morning routine. I would sit and read for a half hour in the morning and do all those things. And, and we were able to land the biggest deal we ever had landed at that point because we had executed on that business and I gave myself the space and that set us up for. 19 and 20 and, and onward. Um, but the reason I tell you this story and why it's connected to the messy middle is that by the time we got to spring of 19, we have this sense because we had let go of the reins in a way that we never did, that everything was great and that the culture was so solid and that people were really happy and that we had hired all the right people. And Drew, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Mm. And we went into 2019. Again, we were able to execute. There's never been a point where we didn't execute because that's just how we are. And we're able to, to fight through it. But we had in, in the year 2019, as I was reading the messy middle, we had 30 different people leave or we removed from the organization and had to replace an additional 30 people. Wow. We had seven transact people situations where we had to engage legal counsel in some way in one year. Whoa. If that wasn't the messy middle, I don't know what was. And I read the book at the exact right time. And I was like, all right, this makes sense. How do we get from this point forward? And that is where we really just from that moment on buckled down we looked at what was working in EOS, what wasn't working in EOS. How do we make this even more authentic to who we are? And how do we position this for the future to really be able to get through this? 
Um, and that, that really, you know, again, this, the story all seems like it's all great and we're at the top and we're the best and all those things, but those things happen. And, yeah. and I'm happy to talk about them and share them with other founders because it's okay. Um, and it really shapes and forms how we want to run our business moving forward too, from that experience in 2019. Yeah, man. Some of the most, some of the most discouraging parts about the journey is not knowing that this is part of the journey, yeah. right? You think, Oh, this signals the end, the messiness, the chaos, the, the, we took two steps forward. We just took three steps back. Like what in the world versus when you figure out this might actually be part of the journey, right? That it, it orients you a little bit. And, and then you can start asking better questions. What can we do? What are we learning? What's the next step forward look like? What, what were the big lessons that you'd feel comfortable sharing that emerged for you guys in the messy middle that were like, that's the problem. And here's the solution. Uh, what, what were some of those? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was that, that people filter, right. That we talked about with, with EOS and making sure we're hiring the right people and, and, and for the right reasons and really doing that around core values. Um, for me as a leader, it was recognizing the, the potential and the, the reality that comes with measured growth and incremental growth versus just huge growth, right? You know, you talk about a 10x increase in terms of number of transactions in a given year, that's, that's not sustainable. Yeah. And that is what brought on so much of this, this tumult in the people aspect of, of what we were doing. Um, so I think, you know, understanding who you are as an organization, who you have brought on the train with you, you know, right people, right seats, and ultimately recognizing where they can again, to use an EOS term, GWC, which is gets it, wants it, and has the capacity to do it. Um, and just, just recognizing people for, for who they are and, and what they're capable of. Yeah. Uh, and, and knowing that their measured growth and incremental growth is, is okay and in some ways is better. What were the parts of EOS that you realized didn't really work right for you guys and you need to do your, do your own thing? Because I love that, by the way. We use EOS for our business, but I always take every every system, every process with a grain of salt and go like, there's no way it's gonna be a hundred percent fit for me. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what were the parts that you were like, man, that, that I like this, I like that, but this part really wasn't working for us. And so we had to find our own way of doing that. Yeah, really good question. So, you know, I, I thought about this and we think about it a lot. I think that EOS is, is a, it's a simple process, right? It's got to meet the, the lowest common denominator. It's got to be for the common good. And I think the concept behind Every organization has a marketing function, an ops function, a finance function, and a sales function. And you can hire a leader that oversees that, regardless of what they're selling or operating on marketing, is just not true. Hmm. Businesses have nuance. And, and I think that was probably our biggest foil in this, was thinking that we could hire one person to just oversee a significant sales organization that yeah. has many different products and not to mention that we're in client services which adds just a whole other layer and those client services are oftentimes with developers of real estate which i don't think i'm surprising anybody by saying like that's that's an interesting dynamic right i mean you know I, they're they are building multi-million dollar towers into the sky. 
I mean, there is a significant amount of risk that comes with that and a significant personality that comes with a real estate developer for the most part and managing that dynamic is real. Yeah. Um, so hiring somebody to just handle sales was not going to work. And yeah. I think that was, that was really at the core and that's what we learned very quickly. And we have since evolved our leadership team to incorporate different aspects of sales um, and, and really focus it in on what our business was. Interesting. The second, the second thing that I will say um, is that EOS is a very hard and fast, like goal metric based um, system. Yeah. And it lacks what we, it's not a heart centered system, right? It, 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 it talks about people, but it doesn't incorporate people in a way that we really need to, especially given all the things that have come about since the pandemic. So I think a lot of the language of EOS, specifically things like issues, right? That, that just means bad, right? When you think about an issue, nobody thinks about an issue and it's like a great topic to talk about. <laughs> so, so we have thought of issues as opportunities, right? So we're thinking about things in a much more positive, heart-centered kind of way versus just the stringent EOS terminology that, that exists. Oh, I love that. Uh, I definitely resonate with that. I would say there's some things if we were having a full-on EOS conversation, which I'm not a, a practitioner, or I'm not a licensed person or whatever, but I would say there were some things like on the accountability chart that I wonder if was misunderstood. The rest, though, I, I really agree. We actually have a friend. I'm going to give him a free shout-out on here, uh, Benj Miller, who started his own company called System & Soul that – he was an EOS implementer for years, but had some similar critiques and oh, I love that. That's wanted awesome. to do his own version, take the best parts of it and do his own version uh, that, I, that you should take a look at. And anybody listening out of Atlantic called System and Soul, uh, they are awesome. But it was that soul part. Like you don't yeah. want just the system, but like the soul of your people and the soul of the company, like integrating that into what we're trying to build here. It sounds similar to what you're saying. Yeah, I love that System and Soul. I'm definitely gonna look that up. Yeah, um, yeah no, no, no question. And I think that, you know, whether it's EOS or any operating system. Agile, all that stuff, yeah. Any of, first of all, you got to use it. I mean, yeah. if you really want to grow and you want to grow in a, a, a real organization um, that, that thrives and that puts people first, you need to systemize those processes. You, ne you need to have that. Um, so we're fans of EOS, but I know there are lots out there that are, that are there. So I would encourage any founders who are looking at that to really invest in, in that. It is worth it. It's critical. Um, it is not an overnight fix. Yep. We are three years into this thing and we feel like we're, we're just getting it now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We tell so, people to, to expect at least 18 months before you, yep. before you feel like you're starting to see the, the, the real fruits of it. And then yep. it just gets better from there. Right. But again, as a, as a non like hired by EOS person, I always tell people like, man, flex, like, Learn the rules first, and then yep. you can break the rules, yep. right? I so, just, like, I just had this conversation with my nine-year-old daughter. Yeah, I was like, you got you got to learn the rules so you can learn how to break. Yep, and and you break them for the benefit of everybody, right? You break exactly. them exactly in, in a smart, again, measured way, um, and it just creates a much much stronger culture and much stronger co company overall. Yeah, so that's what we did, man. Like we we really committed to EOS and did that and learned the rules, learned how to even do it for other people. But then when the pandemic hit, we realized we needed more speed. And we were going to have to experiment a lot and we were going to need some fast iterations. And so we did a, we did like a, a synthesis or like a, uh, like a meshing together of EOS principles at the big scale. So like quarterly meetings, yearly goals, 10 year, you know, the VTO kind of thing. 
but then we lived out more of an agile sprint method where we were tracking every two weeks, you know, and giving points to what we got accomplished because we realized actually we need something quick. We need to be able to pivot. And it's like, who says you can't do both? We found a way because we understand the principles that we can flex into do like an agile sprint while also kind of big picture doing an EOS kind of format. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. I, lo- I love that. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And we found it critical in the pandemic too, that when revenue, you know, revenue was not going to be something that we were going to be excited about in the short term because <laughs> nobody was spending money on anything. We wanted our team to still be energized. And so the agile format helped us because they were having metrics that were attached to activity. It was attached to meaningful, not just activity, meaningful activity. Like, wow, we, we got the, the, the MVP done for this new service. Well done. That was like, that was 30 points, you know? And so we had something that we could celebrate and something that we could track that wasn't just money coming in the door. And that actually kept people motivated to experiment and to try things. And I found that very interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, listen, the pandemic, we could probably do another, <clears throat> another hour on, on the pandemic, oh, but yeah. it, it has, it has been shaping. What I will say about the pandemic, just briefly, um, it was the work that we did in obviously all the work before, but specifically with EOS in 18 and 19 that allowed us to still continue to thrive during the pandemic. Yeah. If we did not have that, if we didn't have that structure, that framework, you know, we use Basecamp as a, as both a project management tool, but also a culture tool. Um, those things were so crucial during the pandemic. So, you know, I told you the story about kind of the 30 people leaving in 2019. On the flip side, in 2020, we had a total of three. Whoa. And no, and no legal action. Whoa. So, you know, it can be done. And, and it, it, was, it was a totally different year in 2020 than it was in, in 2019. Um, you know, it's not to say can't fall off again, but you got to look in the mirror. You got to realize where you're going wrong and, and make some changes. So if we look at 17, 18 and 19, essentially as being characterized by the messy middle, right? That if we want to give it a chapter title, like oh, the yeah. season we're in, what do you think right now? And I, it might be hard to know being in the middle of it, but how would you characterize the, the chapter of the season of the company you guys are in right now? Yeah, so we're, we're at a pivotal moment. Um, you know, we have, we have gotten to a point in Chicago and the work that we've been doing primarily over the last eight years, but in, in earnest the last three, where we have great clients. Um, we've established tremendous client relationships. I was very intentional during the pandemic that it wasn't necessarily about growing market share. It was about taking care of the clients that we had at that time and really doubling down on those. Um, and, and knowing that if we did that, that they're clients for life. Um, and we really feel that way. Yeah. We have a, a great client base right now. We have a really, really solid leadership team. Um, and even, even our, our management team, you know, the layer below leadership um, is really very consistent now. Um, I, I will tell you, just to give you an idea of kind of the guidepost of where we are as an organization, and, we're, and I'll, then I'll talk about where we're going. Uh, Amy and I, both just, so, so our kids are 11 and nine now. They both went to sleepover camp for four weeks. So for the first time we had that. So jealous. Nest, you know, first time in 12 years, 13 years, whatever it was. And it's something we've been looking forward to for obviously a very long time. We missed our kids, but we wanted them to go to sleepover camp. It's great. 
Amy and I were able to take 17 days, completely checked out of this company for 17 days, never checked an email, never checked a date base camp message, no text messages. And our team was able to handle it. Wow. That was a moment, man. And that was very special for us to be able to get there and know that, you know, I don't know if the messy middle ever really ends until you sell or until you're totally out. Yeah. But that felt very different to be able yeah. to do something like that. Cause I can't tell you how many vacations I've been on that have been hijacked. You know, I can't tell you how many times my kids have said, daddy, you know, can you put the phone down? And, and that, that kills me. Right. I mean, oh that, yeah. For, for all of us, we all, we all experience that and are trying to balance that in some way. But to be able to do that and take 17 days and, and know that our team supported it, we prepared them. But, you know, we have a saying now that PTO really stands for instead of paid time off, it's prepare the others. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. So so that's, you know, that's kind of how we looked at it. And we talked about it. We shared it with the whole company. We're like, listen, we're taking this time off. We really appreciate all your efforts. And everyone was so supportive of it. So that was, you know, that's such a big moment for us to, to have a company like that that supports their, their leadership, their ownership doing that. Because here's the other thing, Drew, and this is something that I, I want everybody to listen to. When you take time off, whether it is one day or 17 days, my theory is that for every day that you are completely checked out, you get a week of optimum output as the residual. And as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as people who just have so much coming at us all the time, if you take that time and you really check out, I'm not talking about like, I'm just going to check email once a day, because then you're back in, yep. you're thinking about you're it. mentally on still, you're mentally on, you get a week of optimum output. So whatever you're taking off is nothing compared to what you get. So wow. you know, I've, I've subscribed to that for quite a while now. When we go out, you know, we'll go out for three or five days and we'll, we'll, we'll really check out. Um, where we can, um, but to do 17 is just a whole nother level. It's almost like so, a sabbatical, man. That that's awesome. Yeah. So so that's where so that's where we are. And now, like I said, in Chicago, we've got the great clients, and our clients were part of that too. I, I don't want to underscore that. You know, them acknowledging that, empowering us to be able to do that, recognizing the work that we had put in, the loyalty that we had showed through a pandemic, and not you know not needing us for that couple of days, that, that 17 days was really important too. So now we have this established client base. We have market share, we have brand equity in Chicago, um, but there are some bigger things that, that we're working on. Um, we, are, we are going out to the Chicago suburbs now. We've expanded our business out there. Uh, we have our first deal with a longstanding client uh, that'll start in the beginning of 22. Um, we are looking at national opportunities we have been approached by a number of different developers to take this concept that doesn't exist in most parts of the country and bring it outside Chicago. So that is very much on the horizon and we're starting to do some consulting work out there and, and really think that in the next couple of years, we'll be able to grow this in, in some you know, uh, strategic select markets. Um, and then you know, it still comes back to data. We have such incredible data we, we love data and our team loves data and we love building out systems and processes to track it and be able to, to make really smart decisions on it. Um, so we've, sent, we've built some custom technology that's going to track data on a national basis for the luxury apartment market so that we can ultimately use that certainly to, to benefit our national expansion, 
but then also see that as um, a large scale and, and, and potential next business that comes, you know, after, you know, we gather this for the next few years to, to take the knowledge and the, the work that I've done over what will, you know, we're on, we're on a 10 year plan. It'll be 20 years in 2027, what I will do in 20 years um, and, and be able to, to do that. And, you know, and ultimately when, when we went about this idea of changing how Chicago leases apartments, right, which is really what, we, what we've done to, to great extent, it was about changing a very small portion of, of the industry. And I feel like we're at a point with the team, with the systems, with the processes that we have, that I can see it, I can see it bigger now in a way that I never was before. Yeah. Um, it will not happen overnight. It will have messy middles within it. Um, but, but we are certainly ready for it because we understand that measured incremental growth is the way to do it. And we can continue to be successful growing that way. Super cool. And you, and you stress tested it, right? Like going away for 17 days was a, was a reasonable stress test to see, like, do we have what we think we have? Do we have people that can handle their stuff and that they can, you know, flex and take on some extra responsibility while we're gone for a bit and, and your people pass the test, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it, it really was. It was, it was a pretty special moment for us. Awesome. Well, I've got that to look forward to. We have an eight, a six and a four-year-old and you're, you're I, in. <laughs> I'm in it, man. I'm in it. Summer, we're, we have 10 days left till they're back in school. I love the time with them. I also, I enjoy, just like you're talking about, I'm going to enjoy them being in school from seven in the morning till two 30. And my wife's a real estate agent. And so we've been both juggling that with them at home and babysitters and that stuff. So, uh, I'm excited for, for that moment. I'm going to, I'm going to send you a message the first moment they go to sleepaway camp and we're, we're, we're away together. Send it to me, man. I will say this though, you know, at 11 and nine, we, the pandemic's been awful, right? In so many different ways, but to have this time with kids at that age. Yeah. Invaluable. was such a gift because we weren't going to have it. Right. I mean, yeah. downtown at seven o'clock at night and coming home for dinner and we're seeing them for an hour. We've just as a nuclear family been able to fuse together in a way that would, it would have never happened. And, and that will last a lifetime now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. All right, my man, let's get into our lightning round questions and I'll let you get back to your busy day. Question number one, yep. you could ingrain one message into the entire organization. What would that, what would that message be? Yep. So, you know, our passion, if you will, is what we say is to empower people to live their best life. That's, that's what, that's what we are here to do. If I could ingrain that in everybody that we really want to empower you to live your best life, that would be everything. And whatever that means to our people, that means to our people, that's also for our clients, that's also for our customers, that's also for our vendor partners. We are selling real estate, right? I mean, we're not, we're not curing cancer. We, we're doing important work, but ultimately we want people to live a fulfilling, empowered life. And oftentimes that will mean you can do that with luxury living and with us as part of it. But it also sometimes means that it's not with luxury living and that's what empowers you to live your best life. And mm -hmm. we're okay with that too. And I think that if our team could really understand that and feel that, and I think they do, I think, you know, for the most part they do, but you know, we often have, you know, we, we sometimes have those, those little aberrations, then that would be what I'd really want ingrained into our team. I like it. Okay. Question number two, 
<laughs> what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst advice? So the single best advice I ever got growing my business. I had an answer. All right, let's go to the worst first because I had that one because we already talked about it. The worst was this idea that everybody can, you know, kind of that that every organization functions the exact same and that it is, you know, sales, marketing, ops, whatever, finance, and then you can do the same. It just, (laughs) I love EOS. I think we had to feel this. We had to go through it, but it was rough, man. <laughs> it, it, it was rough. And, and it, I don't know if it was bad advice, maybe some companies, but like, I just feel like every company has their own nuance and yeah. you have to, you have to be able to, to do that. Um, the best advice also comes from EOS and that is letting go of the vine and elevating and delegating. Yeah. Really letting go of that vine. That's what allows that, that 17 day sojourn, sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you know, I couldn't do that without trusting and entrusting and empowering the people that we have working for us and supporting us to be able to do that. Um, that was game changing for me. It's beautiful. All right. Question number three, what causes you the most worry or stress currently leading your organization? (sighs) Growth. Like, you know, we, it's growth, right? It's, the it's need no, for it or the stress that growing is causing you? Uh, in this moment right now, the stress that growing is causing me because I'm always going to be first, right? Because I have the vision. I know what I want to see happen. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to think about my people. I'm going to just want to make sure that they're going to be okay. And I have to get through this piece, right? I have to, to because it would be very easy for me to sit back and just do what we're doing now. Yeah, right? I could, yeah. and and that would be okay. I mean, we're, we've grown a successful business; it would be good. I just feel like we have an opportunity to do something that nobody else is really trying to do. And I'm I'm young enough; I have the energy, I have the support to really go after it and try it now. But it does not come without stress. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, question number: What are we on four? What is your BHAG, your big hairy audacious goal? So the BHAG is real and, and it's something that we set in 20, late 2017, early 18, we started on this 10 year plan Um, and coming out of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021, we actually changed our BHAG Hmm. and we made it much more authentic to who we were coming out of the pandemic. So the original BHAG was to be a $50 million company and a 50% market share. That's a BHAG, man. That's like, and then we were like, wait a second. I don't really want to do that. Like, I don't want the turn of, like we, we talked about 2019, right? You talk about growth like that. I mean, the growth that has to come with that is just insane. Yeah. So, so we scrapped that. And instead of, we looked at what is really authentic to this organization and what can we make happen again in that measured and incremental way that is so true to what has brought the success that we have had. And we broke it into two parts. So we have a revenue aspect and a people aspect. So on the revenue side, in this 10-year period, we're looking to grow revenue a cumulative 150% and a cumulative $100 million of revenue. Okay. Right? 
those are very manageable numbers and in line with kind of where we are and we're on track for that kind of revenue growth. And it doesn't feel so overwhelming. But on the people side, which I think is probably even the more important aspect, we have really two different cohorts of people. We have a brokerage team who are independent contractor real estate brokers. And then we have our employee base, right? And each support each other. On the brokerage side, what has become very evident and what people have really rallied around and celebrated is we have a number of brokers who are able to do 100 or more transactions a year. So whether that's rentals or sales or whatever, and we call it the 100 deal club. So my goal in this 10-year period is to have 100 brokers join the 100 deal club. Cool. Which should be pretty awesome. And then on the other side of the people front, we also celebrate everybody's five-year anniversary. We get together, we have a party, we give them a hard hat, everybody signs it. We've created this kind of just ceremony that just kind of happened organically. So I want to have 50 people who have joined the five-year club. And when you think about that, you think about you have an organization that has 50 people that have the longevity, the consistency, the history of the company for at least five years, sky's the limit. Mm. So good. I love it. I love how you tweaked it to figure out the authentic goals for you guys that were both motivating and, and more realistic and true to who you are. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. All right. Question number five, if you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past and tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when are you going back and what are you shouting out to that younger version of yourself? Oh man. And it can't be by Bitcoin too easy. No, it's not by Bitcoin. I, I, I actually was very fortunate. I got involved in crypto in 2017. Oh, come on. No. <laughs> Don't tell me that. I, hey, I'm going to talk to you afterwards about a loan, okay? <laughs> yeah. not, not to the extent that other people, I didn't buy Bitcoin, but I got, I, I'm riding it, man. I'm riding it. Uh, I'm hold, so fortunate to, to have done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I really, I got to go I'm going to try not to get emotional, honestly, because it's real, right? Yeah. I don't know about, I haven't watched enough of these. Do people get emotional yes. answering this question? I did not think I was going to get emotional, but but it is. And wow, I did not expect this, Drew. I love it. Um, probably eighth grade. It's going to be okay. Hmm. You're going to change the world and you're going to change a lot of people's world. And you're going to find a partner and in life and business and my marriage and have kids and that's it man i'm assuming eighth grade was a dark time then yeah and you know it i don't know if it's specific to eighth grade but just kind of you know, fifth and eighth yeah. were both rough but just that kid right yeah yeah it's a tough time in life yeah it's a tough time in life and I'm, I'm approaching that period where my, you know, my oldest daughter is going to sixth and, and we're getting there. And that's where I would go. It's awesome. It's awesome, man. And it's that, and it's that simple. Yeah. It's going to be okay. That simple. It's going to be okay. You're, you're going to affect a lot of people's lives in a really meaningful way. And beautiful. you're going to be okay. And you're going to find that partner, right. That I, that I, you know, Amy, Amy is that partner for me, both in mm. business and in life. And as an eighth grade boy, that was probably one of my biggest fears. And would I find somebody that would 
do this with me and, and, and live this life with me. And also the, uh, you know, the idea from a, a, a business standpoint and, and financial and all those things to be okay. And, and, and we are and have, and have health and all of that. I love it, man. Thank you for, for being honest or being vulnerable with us. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. I, I didn't expect that. Sure. I don't, I don't. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a weird time though. Right. I mean, we're yeah. all just taking stock of life and exactly and where we are and, and what's important. And, and we're just, you know, that that's where we're at. So it's caused, it's caused us to, um, to get out of autopilot and we wake up and we wake up and we look around and we start asking good questions. What have I been through? Where am I going? What matters? What doesn't matter? Who am I? Right. And that's why we built that question in there. It was just almost like an inkblot test. Like however you, however you want to interpret it, like where does your mind go? And I'll tell you, I had somebody on a different, I was on a guest on a podcast and they listened to mine. And so they brought that the first time someone's asked me that question, but they flipped it and they, they wanted to know about the future. If I could go into the future and see yeah. something, yeah. Dude, I cried on that podcast. I never been thought about that question. And my mind immediately went to my kids in their 20s. Yeah. And I wanted to know they were alive. I wanted to know they're healthy. And I wanted to know what our relationship was like. Yeah. And I re- didn't realize like how much I was carrying that weight of like parenting is hard. I hope I do this well. I hope they like us when it's all said and done. You know, like I hope they're okay and they're not on the side of the road somewhere and angry with me or something. Um, but it was cool. Cause I was able to take that into my heart and say, all right, well, let's make sure we, we guarantee that future as best we can. Right. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being here, Aaron. This has been, um, really, really great into my week and an awesome uplifting and, and really insightful conversation. So thank you, man. Yeah, no, really appreciate it. I, like I said, this was, listen, this has been a long week. It was Friday. I was like, Oh man, I was like, <laughs> how are we going to do this? But I'm so glad I did. Thank you so much, Drew. And for everybody out there, like it just, it's a journey, man. It's a messy middle and you, you fight through it and, 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 and it's life. And yeah. that, that is the, the, the goal is the journey. And you got to remember that. Love it. Perfectly well said. We'll end there. Thank you, buddy. All right. Thanks, Drew. Founders. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.